People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. Now, I hope you won't think this is indulgent, but going through the experience of having a book published for the first time in my life was both thrilling and challenging. The whole process fascinated me, especially once all my work had been done and sent off to the publishers, Jonathan Ball. But then the process of editing, proofreading, printing and publishing also completely fascinated me. So, I decided to invite the publishing director at Jonathan Ball, Jeremy Borain, to be my guest on this week's edition of People of Note, to talk about the magical world of authors, books, publishers and printers. And Jeremy has worked at various publishing companies and has been at Jonathan Ball for the past decade and a half. He's worked with a number of South Africa's top authors since Jonathan Ball Publishers, which was started in 1976, specializes in South African history, politics and current affairs, but also publishes some fiction. There's even a Harry Potter link, but we'll get to that. Jeremy, welcome. Welcome to People of Note. Thank you, Rodney. It's lovely to be here. I've been talking about you being in the whole business for a long time. Has it been your life? What attracted you to books and publishing? You know, I was one of those people that um, very early on knew what he wanted to do. Um, I think I was at university, at the University of Cape Town. And although I didn't study literature, I didn't study English, um, I just, I had a calling, it felt. Uh, originally, I think it started as uh, I thought I was going to be a writer. Um, but as time has shown, I don't have the discipline to be a writer. So I thought, well, Let's rather be a midwife to authors <laughs> That's an interesting is how I, ref- how I refer to it. And yeah. we can talk about that later. So I, the dream was to try and work in publishing. And I, I always um, then considered uh, New York to be the capital of um, the world publishing. And I got myself there fairly early on and, and worked for Penguin there. And so that, that was the beginning of the journey. So what exactly attracted me? I, th- I was always an avid reader. Um, and uh, although my grammar and spelling was absolutely atrocious in those days, I just loved the written word. So I think if I haven't always been in book publishing, I've always worked with words. It's very refreshing to hear that, to hear someone say how wonderfully attractive a book is reading. Because, of course, we're suffering these days, aren't we, with people reading less or just getting information in little bite-sized chunks from the internet, but sitting down with a novel and reading is something very special, isn't it, which obviously you felt from the beginning? I think so. You know, I mean, there's always an existential sort of dread that people are doing less of something or more of something. And I wonder if that's always true. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think, you know, there wasn't a time where everybody read novels. I think it's always been a certain group of people or certain population. Certainly the publishing industry or the book industry is is challenged by the growth of um, social media and digital technology. And uh, I do think attention spans are shorter and our lives seem to be so busy with, you know, endless emails and WhatsApps falling into our, into our phones. 
Um, but um, it's perhaps the way to, to look at it is that it's a great escape from the troubles of the world. Uh, it can also be more, much more than that, of course, but it's, a, it's an opportunity to indulge oneself, to, to be alone with that author. Mm-hmm. And with the wonderful use of the language that he may or may not make. Yes. This glorious language we have called English. Yes. Yes. Well, any language really, but uh, well, for, yes, for me, yes, English. For English. Mm. And you must have a pretty good idea of how many people are reading in your business as publishing director, Jonathan Ball. You're clearly selling books. The bookshops are full of books and people browse and presumably buy. Yes, Although it's, it's tough times, isn't it? It's tough economic times. It is tough economic times, but I don't want to dwell on that. We all know that it's tough economic times. Every industry is struggling. Every business is is is. It's a challenge to mm. to stay to stay afloat. It is difficult to know precisely how many books actually get read. We know how many get bought, uh, but we all know that um, um, you know many books are bought and remain unread. And in fact, one finds people take on reading challenges. They're going to read X number of novels in a year um, or X number of novels from a certain country. My challenge this year is to go back onto my bookshelves at home and find books that have been there for years and years and read them. Uh, So I'm on book number two. (laughs) So I haven't made much progress. Well, it's month number two. Yeah, Yeah, month number two, book number two. So even if I read 12 that have just been languishing their lonely little books on my bookshelf, Mm. you know, it's it's an opportunity, you know, and I I mean, it's a business. We publish books. But um, the great joy is that if not another book was published ever again, we would still never run out of material to read. Gosh, that's great to hear. There is a wealth of yeah. published books going back over the last few centuries or millennia, for that matter, that we could that we could read. With this going through your shelves uh, and talking about these little books in the nooks and crannies, would you reread? Are you a rereader? Because that's something I love doing: is rereading a book that I loved either at school or some years ago, and finding it on my bookshelves and thinking, "I'm going to give that another bash." I'm doing that now as we speak, in fact. And what book is that? It's an A.A. A. Gill. Do you know the, no, the writer A.A. A. Yes, Gill? Yes, There's a selection of his best writings. Oh. And I took it to Berlin with me last year and read it very quickly. Hmm. And I came across it by accident because I was looking for something else. And I've started reading it again. And everyone who knows A.A. A. Gill will know what an incredible writer he was. Yes. And so just enjoying the language on the second trip through is an absolute joy. So how about that? I think I fantasize about rereading books, the books that I've really enjoyed, but somehow I'm lured by something new. Or, <laughs> yes, or well, we all are. Yes, so I would, I would struggle to name a book that I've read more than once. And sort of the one great sort of challenge or failure in my life is that I was presented with a copy of Ulysses by James Joyce uh, for a birthday present from a girlfriend when I was 20. And I've tried to read it over and over and over again. And I think I've made it, made it as far as chapter five. I've tried it uh, as an audio and I've yet to get through it. So <laughs> you know, perhaps you can re-interview me in 20 years time <laughs> yes. and maybe I will have got to chapter 10. But yes, and you can tell us all about Ulysses. <laughs> yes. I have just another anecdote from me is that um, I have a book that I think I might have read five or six times, and that was a book we had at school called My Family and Other Animals by Gerald Durrell, by Gerald Durrell. which is an absolute delight. Yes, wonderful but book. it's about you, this interview, not me. So tell me about your first piece of music. 
um, Carmina Burana, the famous cantata. Yes, I chose that because, in fact, I sang it in the Cape Town City Hall in 1978. When I started to make my selections of music, I fondly imagined that I had sung it as a soprano. Uh, I sang in, the, in a school choir that joined, I think, the, the Cape Town Symphonic Choir. But looking at the dates, I think I was a bass because <laughs> I went swiftly from soprano, alto, tenor, bass uh, by the end of 1978, and then I quietly slipped out of the choir. But I think this Comina Burana really did give me a, a love of choral music, of choirs. And it's not that I listen to it all the time, but uh, I have a great appreciation for it, and I find it, I just sort of fall into it when I hear it. So, and I think it was this cantata that, uh, that gave me that. Right, that's the thrilling opening chorus, O Fortuna, of the cantata Carmina Burano by Karl Orff. The first choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Jeremy Borain. People of Note is brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. And um, does music play a role? We spoke about literature. You said you sang in the choir. I know there are other arty things that you do which we're going to come to, but... Um, does music play a role in your life at all, uh, in a sense of playing an instrument or still singing? I think if I have one regret in my life, it's that I can't play an instrument and I can't read music. Um, 
So I, um, I do love to sing more in the shower or, you know, on my own or wherever with, than anything else. There's been talk of, you know, little singing groups here and there, but somehow time doesn't allow it. Um, so, so that's that as far as my sort of participation. But, um, I've, you know, coming onto your show has made me think about my relationship with music. And I have a great love and appreciation of it, although I would struggle to sort of name types of musics or musicians, whatever. You know, I'm a sort of a, a sort of a rank amateur as far as that goes. Uh, but it's interesting looking at, you know, well, what what is the music that sort of stays with one? And of course, one does refer back to one's youth quite a lot. And there's there's more than one reason for that. I think uh, sort of looking at the sort of great void of music. Uh, as far as my listening goes, and that was when I had children. I think that um, you suddenly stop, I did, stop listening to music. It's just one's just sort of too busy raising children. Uh, so the kind of noughties are kind of quite empty as far as, as I was concerned. But I think there's another reason for that, and I think that um, there was technological changes happening in music. So when I was growing up, it was vinyl, and then it was cassette tapes, and then it was CDs. And that's kind of where it ended for me. And CDs became increasingly difficult to, to lay your hands on. And it was only when I signed up for one of these streaming music services that I suddenly began to discover and rediscover music. Uh, and it's been a wonderful joy. I think it's, one, it's, a, it's an extraordinary invention, I think, for consumers of music mm-hmm. where you can find things and you can listen to things and you can listen to different versions of songs. So I have a, a, a wonderful time listening to music now. I wonder if that would ever happen to books. I know books are available electronically, mm. audiobooks, all these, the Kindle phenomena, mm. where you can download a book. I suppose that's what a Kindle is, like downloading a symphony from a streaming platform. You can yes. download a book. So it yes. is happening to books at the same time. Absolutely, it is happening. And I think where, where, where there's growth internationally in the, in the book industry is not so much in print or even in uh, uh, e-books like you know, the, the Kindle, but it's in audio. Um, now, it's still quite a small part of the greater whole, but in the UK and the US, and very often we sort of lag behind in South Africa and follow the, the sort of English language world sort of business, publishing mm-hmm. business, there's remarkable growth. And I, but uh, there was a study in the UK showing, you know, they segment the market and they look at where is the growth happening. And believe it or not, the growth in the audiobook market there is being led by young men, which is extraordinary because you don't really think of young men reading a lot of books. Um, you know, it's often sort of seen as, you know, women buy books, women read a lot of books, uh, men, you know, not, not so much, particularly in their younger years. And yet this is what, what they're doing. Uh, and why is that? Well, it's a great commuter society, but also perhaps young men have, some of them, have progressed from sort of gaming and uh, podcasts onto books. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the only kind of reason I, I can think of. So, but I think that, you know, I'm finding the, 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 the leap into audio quite fascinating because then it comes about performance. Is and Jonathan Ball leaping into audio? Yes, so we have a contract with Audible.com, which is the great giant of audiobooks worldwide. And so some of our books are um, being uh, converted into audio. And it's been a great sort of learning curve for me and the people I work with, um, you know, making notes around, well, what is the right voice for this book? 
And in a country like South Africa, where you have different accents and you know a range of different sort of backgrounds, it, it's quite important. Uh, and I had assumed that Audible.com being the big dominant partner in our relationship would just sort of say, no, well, we're getting it read by so you know Joe Bloggs in in upstate New York. But in fact, they came to South Africa and they scouted the studios and they found South African voices for the books that we're doing, which is great. And their answer to when I said why is that, well, if they're not authentic, then people don't listen to them. Right. That's very interesting because I would have thought you'd have these American accents uh, reading all sorts of books. But with, as I said, uh, Jonathan Ball publishes Politics, Current Affairs Mm. and it would be interesting to hear what sort of voice you might choose for these and how many women, when you would choose a woman to read as opposed to a man, for example, and all that sort of stuff. Because we're not talking about anything like tape aids for the blind. Are we talking about something a few steps above? Yes, we are. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, some of the choices are fairly fairly obvious. So if we take a book like Quasi by Reddy Klabi, now you're not going to get a white male to read that book. You're going to find a black woman voice to read that book. So it's kind of associated with her. I mean, she, you know, if she had been available, we'd have loved her to read it because, of course, she has a long radio experience. But, you know, her not being available. Um, so, you know, that that's a kind of an obvious choice. But if you take a book, for example, A Short History of South Africa by Gail Natras, it doesn't really matter who reads it as long as it's read well. That's going to be quite an international book. I mean, the, mm. it's a book where we've sold international rights to the print edition. So as long as it's well read. So the, our notes to Audible would be just give us your best reader. And that's what they've done. So does Audible have a selection of readers in South Africa? In and outside. You know, there are South Africans who've sort of cropped up in, in the UK or the yes. US and, yeah. and they do a lot of, I mean, it's, it's work. You know, a lot, of, a lot of people have found a lot of work in reading, in reading books or podcasts. Let's ponder that for a while while mm. we have your next choice of music, Jeremy. Uh, yes, Summer in the City by Joe Cocker. Um, so I spent two years living in New York in my 20s, uh, in the early 90s, or, yeah, 1990, 1991. Now, I must say that the Joe Cocker version was only released in 92, but I do think it's one of the finest versions of Summer in the City. And in a way, this it's very sort of up-tempo, and it kind of has become the anthem of my time spent there. If anyone who spent time in New York in summer, it is hot and gritty. Mm. The And humid, apparently, as well. And humid. The rich have left town because to go off to on their on their holidays, leaving the workers behind. Uh, but you can still have a nice time at night when it cools down. And it was just wildly exciting. Uh, you know, you had to work all the time. Americans work all the time. But you could also have a great time. So that song, just in a way, is my memory of of those two years. It's a different world Go out, 
come on, come on, and dance all night. Despite the heat, it will be all right. And baby, don't you know it's a better day? It can be like the night in the summer, in the city, in the summer, in the city. Joe Cocker, Summer in the City, the second choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Jeremy Borain, who is the publishing director at Jonathan Ball Publishers. We've been talking about audiobooks and the book that you very kindly became involved, Jeremy, my book, Rodney Trajan's Concert Notes. Maybe we should put that onto an audiobook. How about that? I think that's a very fine idea, and um, I would like to put that to audible.com, our partners. Uh, I think that... Um, it would only be worth doing if you read it yourself. Oh, I think, good. <laughs> yes. I th- you know, I think that, um, I mean, it is Rodney Trudgeon's concert notes. It's yeah. not someone else's concert notes. Right, right. So, and uh, uh, let's face it, this is your training. Well, there you in, go. In, in talking and reading. And uh, so I give you and your listeners this undertaking. <laughs> 
<laughs> to try and get it onto audio. I wasn't trying to put you in a corner here. Jeremy. Why not? But um, and actually, a number of people have asked, so that's interesting. And mm. it, as you said earlier, it seems to be hugely popular audiobooks. And before you started saying that, young men, I, I'm amazed that so many people like to listen to audiobooks because you sometimes think if you are listening to an audiobook, you might be doing something else, like driving. Well, I suppose you could do that, but when you sit and read a book, you've got to sit and read it. Mm. It's what I often say about music. When you sit and listen to music, you've got to sit and listen. Don't do the knitting or, you know, yes. something else. Yes. One of the things I wanted to ask you, we're talking about Jonathan Ball Publishers. Jonathan Ball founded this. Jonathan is still around, isn't he? But he's not as hands-on anymore. Or what is the situation with Jonathan himself? Jonathan, he founded the company in the in the in the mid to late seventies, and he um, was at the helm for many years. He stepped down as CEO about four or five years ago, um, and he is now there on a part-time basis. His title is publisher at large. So what he's doing is following up on ideas for books, using his contacts, bring them to the table, see if they're worth publishing. Mm-hmm. So he's keeping his hand in, and of course, you know, many companies. When you lose your institutional memory, um, you, you you lose a lot. And, of course, you know, it's great to bounce ideas off him because he can then say, well, I tried that back and then and it didn't work. Maybe it'll work now, but it didn't work then. Or you'll sort of say, well, so he's he's got he's got wonderful memory of, of the industry. And, of course, the Jonathan Paul publishes itself. It is. It's a brand and it's a much respected brand. Yes. But um, at the same time, I wanted to ask you, do people come to you with a book to be published or do you, you mentioned getting ideas from Jonathan or do you go out and commission people? What happens mostly? How does a book come to you? I think uh, uh, there, there, there are many routes. Um, so well, first let me say that we um, there are submissions um, and there is commissioning that we do. So in uh, um, the submissions, you know, we have a website and people can come through that um, unsolicited. There are some agents who operate primarily from the UK and the US who will do submissions to us on on behalf of authors. Uh, And then, of course, there's the network that each of us who work there build up over time. You know, if we've published six or seven of Johnny Steinberg's books over 15 or 20 years, and, and of course, we're very interested in, well, you know, we've just published one of his books, but what's the next book going to be? So there's a kind of a continuation, um, particularly with, with professional writers. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that, is, that is a very important place, the sort of continuity of, of certain authors. But that doesn't mean we aren't always sifting through the submissions pile. And um, most we turn down. But uh, you know, I mean, that's yeah. just the nature—the of the, the nature is. of it. We yes. get we get all range of submissions, and none of them should ever be. You know, many of them should never be books. But amongst that, we do we do find uh, uh, books worth publishing. So you know, at your peril, you ignore your submissions. Okay, but how do you do that? Do you have a, a panel of readers, or if a text comes in, how do you decide who reads it? So I have a colleague, Amy who is the kind of the first port of call and manuscripts will be submitted to her or well, not just manuscripts but perhaps ideas proposals what have you so she's the sort of the first vet um, and then she will rely on me or uh, colleagues of mine to you know look at proposals or read a piece of a manuscript uh, we have regular meetings where we can sort of talk through various ideas it's you know there are hundreds of submissions so it's it's quite 
challenging to stay on top of it. Mm. Um, but that that's her job for now, uh, part of part of her job for now. But of course, submissions are coming sort of through, you know, our customer services email address, or through or through Jonathan himself, or mm-hmm. you know, or I get emails, you know, so or calls or whatever. So they're coming from sort of all directions, and it's uh, it's a bit of a balancing act because. You can only sp- publish it, you know, so many, and there, there, there's sort of important decision making, and you can't only rely on submissions. We we very actively commissioning books as well, and I think that's particularly true in the area of politics, current affairs, uh, biography, um, where we're constantly thinking, where's there a gap? Who needs a good biography? Should it be authorized or unauthorized? Uh, so, so we're out there using our contacts, speaking to you know, it's very often journalists who who we can commission to to write books, and looking ahead, projecting ahead into two years hence, kind of like what's going to be happening in South Africa? Are there elections? Are there you know what events are taking place? A centenary or what have you, or indeed just sort of looking at older books and saying, is it time to revise this book and put it out again? Oh, yes, yes. So a, a good example of that is that. Uh, Jonathan published a book in the late 70s, The Super Afrikaners, oh, yes, uh, which was a well. bestseller and a mm. classic of its time. And we republished it about eight years ago uh, with a new introduction by Max Dupree. And we've sold 10,000 copies, <laughs> which is extraordinary, really. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, so um, one has to be very opportunistic as a mm-hmm. publisher. Thank uh, goodness. I want to ask you about the process next. But first of all, let's have another music break, Jeremy. What's... Is okay, it, yes, this is, um, this is a gazette by Matlatini and the Mohatella Queens. Now, well, not a strange choice, but I chose this song because for some reason, and I can't, don't really understand why, it's another anthem of my youth. So looking at my sort of my 20s, perhaps my late teens and into my 20s, we listened to so many different types of music. You know, there, of course, there was British rock and punk and a lot of reggae and protest music and you name it. Um, and for some reason, this song has sort of stuck in my head as the one where we would be in sort of some dingy nightclub um, filled with smoke and, you know, cheap beer. And then this song would come on and we'd all jump onto the dance floor. There were, there were countless other songs where we jumped onto the dance floor. But for me, I just love this song.
Gazettes and the artist, Jeremy? Maslatini and the Mahatela Queens. 
Okay, there you go. Jeremy Borain is my guest on People of Note. He's the publishing director at Jonathan Ball Publishers. We're talking about the wonderful world of publishing and books. And let me remind you, by the way, that People of Note here on Fine Music Radio is brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. And with the experience of that book being published by you, Jeremy, I was wondering, one of my colleagues, Paul Wise, I know you use as an editor, do you have, how does that work? Do you have a whole kind of list of editors and proofreaders? And what's the difference between an editor and a proofreader? Actually, I think I know the answer to that. But anyway, I'll tell you. You, tell. Um, you know, the editing process can take so many different routes because it all depends on the on the original text mm-hmm. and how ready it is uh, or how close it is to completion. So I suppose at its, at its most basic, um, one always has two editors or two eyes. And the first one is um, the general editor who's going to ask the author queries, is going to apply our house style, is going to you know, maybe chop and change something or you know, ask the author to fill in a gap. Any number of things that editor will do. And it can take anything from two weeks to two months, depending on the complexity or the length or the length of the book. It's a highly skilled job. So we, we don't use many editors. Uh, we perhaps have sort of half a dozen or maybe sort of five that we use on a regular basis for our books. And then sometimes books require specialist attention. So in the case of your book, you know, Paul Wise was ideal because of his knowledge of music. Mm. Uh, so he could bring that to bear, plus his just general skills as an editor. So to sort of two for the price of one, Paul, yeah. I, hope you're not, I hope you're not listening. But, you know, if one did a book of, say, um, economics, you might have to have a general editor and then you might have a specialist reader to read it through to make sure the editor, the author hasn't made any terrible blunders. So one's always sort of trying to, um, I think we really try to have as much quality on our books as possible. So the second round, so you get through the editing, which is a collaboration with the author, and, uh, and then we go to sort of typesetting. In other words, what the page is actually going to look like on the printed, on the printed uh, book. Uh, and then it'll go to a proofreader. And the proofreader is looking for the sort of at the minutiae those like little um, widows and orphans and uh, capitalization and the full stop that's missing or the transposed words or all those kind of tiny things that um, either the editor and the author missed the first time around or something happens in the typesetting. It breaks a word badly or whatever it is. So it's, it's, uh, it's trying to find all those that little detail and make it look attractive on the page. Goodness, that must be quite a job. Imagine the sort of attention mm. to detail, yes. the eye that you have to have to do that, because you're just faced by a massive text yes. with dots and hyphens and commas and capitals and italics and all those. And I know uh, with my book, Paul and I were often discussing what should be in italics, what shouldn't be, should yeah. this be a capital, with the various movements, the various mm. composers, the various styles. So those proofreaders must be sort of a genius in a way. I think it's uh, maybe genius is going too far, um, <laughs> okay. but I wouldn't want to take away. You know, I think it's a particular muscle that one develops, and, yeah, uh, yeah. and I, you know, I know that I'm not capable of doing good proofreading. Uh, I did work at the newspaper for newspapers for so, for some years, and I was okay. Uh, but there, it's kind of slash and burn more than anything else on, on newspapers because <laughs> it's all about speed and turnaround. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's a, an incredible 
discipline and uh, I think it, you know, it's all very well to spot things, but I think it's also to be consistent. So if you italicize this particular kind of word, then you've got to be consistent throughout. And then yes. it comes to the, you know, so it is, it's a tough job. Mm-hmm. It's a tough job. And then the proofreader gives the go ahead for it to go to the printer, to the actual printer. Yes. Yes. Well, we have internal sort of mechanism. We have a production manager who would do a sort of a final look. And uh, there are a number of processes when, you know, that, w- that, that sort of when the book is final, when the, you know, sort of print pages are ready, it'll be a final decision about how many to print. Uh, the digital files will go to another one in our team who then has to get it converted for the ebook. There's obviously all sorts of marketing and publicity things that begin because once you go to print, it's about three or four weeks before the, the, the book, the finished product hits the shelves. So that's obviously a very, very key point. I mean, you also then have had to have finalized the cover, which is an incredibly important part of the book, mm, even indeed, though there's not indeed. that much text compared to inside. Every word is critical. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. the title, the the photograph or the artwork, uh, the blurb, you know, all, all those kinds of things mm-hmm. are, are critical. We were thrilled with our book. <laughs> well, yes, it's a very, very handsome it's edition. A very handsome yes. edition. Yes. And the, the actual printing is done off is done somewhere for you, isn't it? And oh, yes. I'd love to see yes. that, actually. How do you print a book and bind it all together and put the cover on? Maybe you should have tours of the printers so people can go and have a look. I'm sure the printing presses wouldn't mind that, you know. I mean, it, which it, they should organize it, really, because mm-hmm. it's, in, you know, it's in their interest to, um, to remind the public that they are performing this amazing business, you know, yeah. and they are, they are printing books and all sorts of other materials. I mean, you know, obviously newspapers and magazines and wine labels, which are very important. Um, Indeed. So, <laughs> you, you know, yes, I mean, and, and it is. I do try and get myself off there every so often. Uh, but there's been a dramatic change in printing. You know, a lot of it has gone digital. Yes. So very sure. often we do our first printing with conventional lithographic printing, and then it'll become digital printing. So we can do very, very short reprints now. Five or ten years ago, you know, you could, the minimum you could do was maybe 500 copies, 750 copies, and then it got too expensive. Now we can reprint 100 copies. And in fact, we've got down to the book of one, which means you can reprint one copy. It's not our business that's doing it. It's an international business called Ingram's. Uh, so we make our books available globally, and you can, they print a single copy for a customer. So <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it's quite something. Let's have another piece of music, Jeremy. Well, I thought that no playlist is complete without a bit of Leonard Cohen uh, for a certain generation, <laughs> perhaps. Um, and, uh, you know, it was uh, uh, Leonard's perfect for when you're having an existential crisis. Uh, his poetry is extremely deep. And uh, I luxuriated in, in, in Leonard Cohen's poetry, particularly in my teenage years, in my 20s, but even to this day. Uh, you know, I think he was a great, great artist. Um, now, the song that I particularly like is Take This Waltz. So it's a waltz. So not only uh, do you have his wonderful poetry, and in fact, just an aside on the poetry, he wrote the song as a tribute to a Spanish poet, um, Frederico Lorca, uh, who died in the Spanish Civil War. So it was a tribute song to him. So in fact, some of the words are taken from a, a Lorca poem. Um, but it's, uh, it's, the, it's the beauty of the waltz with the words that I've always just Love the song. Now in Vienna, the 
There's ten pretty women. There's a shoulder where death comes to cry. There's a lobby with nine hundred windows. There's a tree where the dogs go to die. There's a piece that was torn from the morning, and it hangs in the gallery of frost. Yeah. 
my soul in a scrapbook with the photographs there in the moths. And I'll yield to the flood of your beauty, my cheap violin and my cross. And you'll carry me down on your dancing to the pools that you lift on your wrist. Take this waltz, take this waltz It's yours now, it's all that there is Leonard Cohen, Take This Waltz. There you are. And that was another choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Jeremy Borain. Jeremy, we're talking about um, politics and current affairs and the various things that you do. But you also do children's literature. And I think famously you're the distributors of Harry Potter here in South Africa. That must have brought in a few rands. It did bring in a few rands. So... uh, the bigger part of Jonathan Ball is, in fact, our distribution. We represent a number of British and American publishers and have, since the beginning, uh, it was the sort of cornerstone of Jonathan's strategy. Um, so we were very fortunate to to represent Bloomsbury, who published Harry Potter. And I joined Jonathan Ball um, towards the end of the very first release, I think, you know, book six or book seven, whatever. And to see, you know, sales of 100,000 copies in one month um, was just extraordinary, you know. And it was, uh, and these were big, expensive hardbacks Mm -hmm. and the the retailers were falling over themselves to order it. And, you know, it was just a, it was an extraordinary thing. And yes, of course, if you look at historically at Jonathan Ball's turnover, those Harry Potter years, there was a spike every year. And I think all publishers, you know, the business model, for better or for worse, relies on bestsellers. And, uh, you know, you don't need something as big as a Harry Potter, but if you don't have them in a particular year, it shows in your figures, whether that's a book that we represent or a book that we publish. And in fact, I mean, just to, to, to mention, not quite as big as Harry Potter, but there's a current book that we've been selling hand over fist, which has a profanity in it. Um, and in fact, we have a imported one and we have a, a local one. The imported one is Everything Is Eft, uh, which has sold, you know, I think 80,000 copies now. And we published a book called Manage Your Money Like an effing grown-up, right. um, which everybody <laughs> wants to lay their hands on. Yes. It's all very well to have a nice, tricky title, but in fact, you still need to have good content in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and and that is really why, you know, it's you can have a tricky title which to help get a bit of publicity, uh, but it's, it's, it's a very good book, the uh, Manage Your Money. Um, I, w- I wanted to ask you, and it might be difficult for you, and you may say, no, don't ask me that, what do you think might be the highlight, your 
number one bestseller. I know you've done things like the Scramble for Africa. You've won Sunday Times Alan Payton Awards uh, on eight occasions. I remember the Scramble for Africa by Thomas Pakenham, which fascinated mm. me, and I was lucky enough to interview Thomas Pakenham when that came out. But does something stick out in your mind as a great success for Jonathan Ball, you apart mean from in, Harry Potter? You mean in the past? Yes. Um, you know, a book that um, I think was something of a milestone uh, now, some years back, was um, After the Party by Andrew Feinstein. Uh, so he was an ANC politician, um, very much sort of like a sort of, you know, part of the struggle. And he became uh, disaffected with the ANC uh, over the arms struggle. And he wrote a book, you know, a very good title, After the Party. Yeah. And it sold very well, but it was a very honest account of the very beginnings of when things started going wrong in the mm-hmm. ANC. So that, that was a very significant um, book for us. Jeremy, because um, time is running out, I just mm. perhaps you can whet our appetite. I mean, what should we look out for from Jonathan Ball over the next few months? Anything, well, I'm going to say anything exciting. I'm sure you're going to say everything is exciting. Well, yes, of course. You know, as I, I, mean, I mentioned being a midwife, and of course, all my babies are <laughs> special to me. But, um, but two books, and I think particularly for... Cape Town audiences, there's a new Michiel Haynes novel coming out, and we don't publish much fiction, so this, this is a very special to me and to Jonathan Ball. It's called A Poor Season for Wales, and it's set in Amanus, and it's coming out in March. Um, yeah, in March. Uh, and then, very interestingly, there's a, a retired psychiatrist, Sean Bowman, who worked at Falkenberg for many years, and he, he in fact, put on a cantata at the Baxter called Madness, and he's now written a book called Madness. And it's not a biography. It's really looking at mental illness uh, through 25 years of experience of, at close quarters. And it's a magnificent book. Um, and it's, it's also um, illustrated by his wife, Fiona Moody, who's a beautiful illustrator. So I think that's a magnificent book. Both of them are. Okay, and out in the next few months. That one's out in April. Okay. Madness is out in April. Jeremy Brain, it's been fascinating talking to you about this fascinating business, but what is your last piece of music before I let you go? It's by Abdullah Ibrahim, um, and it goes way back to 1980. Uh, there was an album, The African Marketplace, and uh, the reason why I chose this was um, my uh, father loved this album uh, back then, and he said at the time, in the early 80s, um, that when he died, he would like a, a piece played at his funeral or memorial service. So, in fact, he did die at the end of 2018. So we did play a piece from this album. Um, so this is The Wedding by Abdullah Ibrahim for my father. And, Jeremy, just to remind people, Alex Bahrain famously was yes, your father. Right. Alex yes. Bahrain, yes, a politician. Sorry, I should have, yeah, should have mentioned that. Yes. But thanks for, thanks for coming along and the, all strength to your arm. Thank you very much, Rodney. It's been a great pleasure.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. (music) 